This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Hello there again, friends, and welcome in to episode 232 of Film Tank. As always, I am Alex Diekman, along with one of my regular partners, Nick Cheney. Pew, pew. Hey. <laughs> it's good to have you, bud. Well, you don't. As always. <laughs> oh. Well, that's a... That's a real dick thing to say. Well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, joining us again, uh, as now we are able to venture outside of the studio with uh, doing the podcast via Skype instead of in, the st- in our little studio that we have, uh, Sarah Bush joining us again. Hello. Hello. Hi. Necessity Welcome. is the mother of invention. Uh, that's what I always was brought up to to know. Yes, this uh, terrible, terrible world we're living in has forced us to think outside the box, and, and now we're transgressing physical boundaries. So that's cool. That's so cool. So elegant the way you just said that too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm thinking about it all day. Just wanted to share that with you guys. Well, thank you. I think, at least speaking for myself, we appreciate it. <laughs> no, thank you for having me again, you guys. This is my third time here, so I am what, what you call a regular. Yep. Yeah, yes, and it took like three years for you to have your second appearance, and now it's been only about a month and a half in between uh, appearances. So that's great. I think- you know, this is what they call call a silver lining yeah and i'm not trying to shame anybody but i think we've only had one person on one episode guest wise so you, you are in <laughs> so the... you're saying i ain't shit yet no i'm saying you're now in the the annals of repeat guests well i guess you were okay. actually about a month ago but uh but it Right, but I was I was in apparently some sort of distinguished company before then. I'd like to know who is that person who was only in one episode, but I'll... that's probably not cooth to talk about. I mean, yeah, it's not that it's not public knowledge. It just feels weirdly <laughs> mean to just single them out. So I'll send you a Facebook message. Ah, <laughs> okay. uh, yes. 
singling out of people on a podcast. Maybe, Is there maybe. any more American thing to do? <laughs> maybe we'll cut this part out, but now that we're talking about it, uh, <laughs> Alex, do you know? Do you remember no, who I'm talking about? Please don't. This is gold. I do. <laughs> okay, I was just curious. I do. That's it was only... a friend of Tucson. Yeah, that's the only and... one person I can think yes. of. Yes. So, anyway, and I will say this: uh, I don't necessarily think like the next week we were like, "Well, that person's never coming back again." It just no, has it never. Just, happened. I was gonna say they were yeah. an extension of another person and that person yeah which is totally fine but you know what that person i will uh give a shout out and say i believe they actually stayed and watched the movie with us um that's probably a bad one that you picked uh, i think it was actually um so you know kudos (laughs) to anybody who's in a weird social situation like that where they barely know all the people but uh yeah it wasn't that bad. You know what would have been better if Tucson just bailed halfway through the movie <laughs> and then like left her yeah. there. That'd been great. That would have been good. Oh, we now have a contextual clue. Oh shit. <laughs> anyway, that's all right. I think I think it's fine. Any seasoned listener will know exactly who we're talking about. Yeah, they would have to be so seasoned it would be burning my mouth. <laughs> oh boy, that would be like the uh, the guy, uh, the comic book guy. Yeah, or somebody, maybe somebody, somebody else bringing up the fired for that blunder. You struck the same ribbon, had a different noise. I hope someone got fired over that. <laughs> Uh, well, you are preaching uh, Back Simpsons. when the Simpsons were good 20 years ago. Yeah. What's that? I was saying you're preaching Simpsons to the Sarah Bush choir over there. It's true. I, I do think of myself as something of a Simpsons sort of expert of a very select number of seasons. You lose it, though. It's like a language that I grew up with, but I don't speak it that much anymore, you know? So here's the here's what I'll say about that. So I actually thought about the same thing because I pretty much saw every episode multiple times from episode one through episode probably 300. And mm-hmm. The bowling at, episode. At, yeah, dude, okay. Right? So, like, I watched, I think, like, five or six episodes earlier this year when I was on my way to Las Vegas, back when people were allowed to leave their state. And... I, yeah, the, I, oh, that whole setup in itself is is a crazy thought, but sorry, go ahead. People used to go what? places. Yeah, back, back in the day. Anyways, uh... Yeah, I watched like five or six episodes from, you know, that era, which was, you know, not awful like they have been for the last decade plus. And Mm -hmm. uh, I just remembered almost everything about every episode that I watched. I hadn't seen them in probably 15 years. So that was that was eye opening. Wow. The 300th episode is from 2002 to 2003, like that season. That's crazy. Hmm. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, um, time, man. They had their run. I mean, they—they're still going. 
somehow. But yeah, no, they're they're still they're, lumbering along. Okay, genuine question for people that watched The Simpsons like in his heyday. Whenever they announce a final season, do you think the final episode has potential to be good? Like, whenever it is? No. Probably. I, uh, <laughs> I actually thought... Okay, I'll say this. It wasn't great, but I actually thought the movie was somewhat of a close return to form when it came out. Like, oh, it wasn't That was like... I was in good. sixth grade or something when that came out. Okay, that's true, but The Simpsons had been I have a pretty mundane. Right <laughs> the Simpsons were pretty Right mundane. now, it could be revoked at any minute. You shut your mouth. <laughs> they were pretty mundane for many years before that movie came out. Yeah. So I feel like if there's like a special event like that, there is potential for it to be deep. And, no, and also, too, they'll know that they're going to have a lot of eyes on it as well. So I feel like there will be more effort. But what does that mean? What does more effort for the Simpsons mean? I, I don't know. I don't know. Getting Hank Azaria I mean, to I... voice Apu one last time. <laughs> in, a, in a touching tribute. Uh, yeah, a, he he delivers the final oddly poignant line <laughs> of the series. And he says, oh, no, I was going to do it. I was going to say, he says, like, thank you and come again. But but, but you were going to do it in an accent. <laughs> yeah. You're part it's of the gonna problem. It's going to be terrible. I am part of the problem. But um, I remember when I saw the movie and I just caught it on TV one day, like, maybe 10 years ago. And I had never obviously sought out the movie before because that was the first time I was seeing it. And I, I remember thinking like, yeah, like obviously it's more ambitious. It's like more entertaining than some random throwaway episode from the contemporary TV series. But like, it still just couldn't even approach the tone or the highs of this, of, of the first like eight seasons or whatever. So I, I don't know. No, the, I mean, I think, the movie just doesn't cut it either, so I, I'm very skeptical that the series finale can do it either. I pretty much agree with what you're saying, even though I, for the most part, enjoyed the movie more than I've enjoyed any episode that I've seen in the last 400 episodes they've done. But mm-hmm. um, I feel like another problem with The Simpsons is that society and culture and comedy and television have changed a lot and they're still doing the same shit every single episode and it really hasn't changed and it's pretty basic as it's not evolved at all i don't think over the years i think you know that just i just had this thought but um, going back to something that we were talking about before we hit record, like another thing that makes me feel my age is I just thought of a friend of mine who was not even alive when I considered and many considered The Simpsons still good. And it makes me wonder about like some of these long running institutions like like SNL or like The Simpsons. And it's like, is this relevant at all to young people right now? And I don't, I don't count myself among them anymore like does my friend Cheyenne even watch or care about the Simpsons or like does she evaluate it on 
its own terms as she watched classic Simpsons? Like, these are the questions that keep me up at night, you know, with this world where nothing else is happening. <laughs> this how to, how does Gen she Z She puts think it on Disney Plus and she's like, this isn't the right aspect ratio. <laughs> oh, I would have- I yeah. have a lot of respect for her if I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I will say as a non-Simpsons expert, I've only really seen the first four seasons in their entirety, and like five through eight, I've always been meaning to sit down and watch. Like I know I've seen episodes from it, but I wasn't like watching it religiously when I was growing up, so I never caught them all. Anyway, what I was going to say is that there's one late episode of The Simpsons, which isn't very late relative to now, that I feel like gives me some hope that, like, if they did a final episode, they would take it a little seriously, which um, the one episode that's, like, post the first ten seasons that I always go back to as being, like, decent, because it seemed like they were trying, is the uh, one called uh, Eternal Moonshine of The Simpsons Mind which is, I guess, from the 19th season, from the year 2007. Um, I remember I had randomly watched that, I think because people were talking about it or something like that, and it's always stuck with me. But it's a slightly more dramatic episode, but only as dramatic as, like, The Simpsons, you know, will get, which in its heyday... I was going to say in its heyday, it, like, can and did... um, but mm-hmm. was kind of a afterthought after a certain era, for sure. So I'm saying I think due to weird blips like that episode, for example, even though that was back in 2007, um, I feel like they could pull something off. But the longer they drag it out, the, the I don't know, I feel like the worse. The less likely it gets. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Any, anything's possible and I feel like the regardless of what the episode would actually contain because well I, well, I don't know why I say would like the show has got to end at some point whenever that does end you know just you know people will um, affix some kind of meaning to it or like some poignancy outside of its actual merit as an episode but uh, or maybe I don't know, maybe it will be an affront to God itself and people will um, burn down the rest of the United States. <laughs> that's true, it could. <laughs> that's that's another possibility that I see, but that's like that's for the, the 45th season, I hope. I, so. just, <laughs> I, yeah, I just found an article uh, by the critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Uh, the article headline is nine Latter-day Simpson episodes that match up to the early classics. And that's where I got the title for this one because I couldn't remember what it was called. But that oh, article, okay. uh, nine Latter-day, ep- <laughs> is from February 2012. So, Oh, I mean, funny. You know, it's just like even then people were thinking like, yeah, this will be over one of these days. So, but no. Yeah. Anyway, but you know what was also in his heyday in the 90s? Scorsese. What's that? Oh. <laughs> hey, <laughs> look at that. So, uh, Martin Scorsese, I mean, as only Nick can be, 
So Martin Scorsese has uh, been covered multiple times on this podcast, uh, as we've mostly done his gangster films, but we've done other films like Silence, uh, and he's obviously got a very uh, deep catalog. And this film, Bringing Out the Dead from 1999, uh, I would say is one of his more under-the-radar films, at least in terms of mainstream knowledge about it, uh, as I had never seen it before, and Martin Scorsese's my favorite film director, so that obviously is not a good start uh, for me or for this film. But at any rate, uh, this film... uh, is surrounding uh, haunted. I'm sorry, there was not a good way to start that. Haunted by the patients he failed to save, an extremely burned out Manhattan ambulance paramedic fights to maintain his sanity over three fraught and turbulent nights. So the film, uh, other than being directed by Martin Scorsese, is based on a novel by Joe Conley and written by Paul Schrader, uh, who also wrote. Taxi Driver, and Raging Bull, and more recently wrote the film First Reformed, which I know both Nick and Toussaint uh, are quite fond of. So the film stars Nicolas Cage (laughs) uh, as Frank Pierce, uh, and also features Patricia Arquette as Mary Burke. There's a lot of other people who come and go throughout this film, as uh, it's more of an ensemble cast that moves in and out of the three nights that we see Frank go through. Uh, those people include John Goodman, Vane Rames, Mark Anthony, Cliff Curtis, and also Tom Sizemore. So, Nick, uh, you suggested this film. So why don't you start us off by letting everyone know why you chose this as a film that you thought we should do and what your opening thoughts are on it okay uh absolutely not no i'm just kidding um i this year have started to do some back catalog scorsese and this was one of them and so i first watched this just this year earlier probably back in january or february um before the world turned upside down and um I liked it so much uh, upon that initial viewing that I had already started thinking about when I would, you know, choose it for the podcast because I thought it would lead to a good discussion. And I generally thought that there was no way that any of us who are regularly on uh, the podcast would, like, hate it. You know, like, I, I just thought it was good and a safe choice. Um, so I rewatched it for this episode, of course, and I absolutely love it. I think it's fantastic. I definitely think it is very unfairly, uh, kind of maligned in Scorsese's career. Um, you know, he makes so many different kinds of films that it's very sometimes frustrating when I see people think of him as a gangster filmmaker, because while he obviously made... Of quite a few of those, if you actually take the ratio of how many those are with how many other movies he made, it's a small percentage, and he just did so many different things over the years, and that's how it's, you know, possible for a movie like Bringing Out the Dead to kind of fall by the wayside, but 
in reality, bringing out the dead does share so much with uh, so much DNA with some of his other projects that it's kind of surprising that it's not talked about more. Um, Alex had brought up the fact that it's written by Paul Schrader, so obviously there's that collaboration between Scorsese and Schrader. Um, whether it's them doing Taxi Driver or um, this, and both of them share a certain um, religious intensity um, because I think Travis Bickle is very similar to someone like um, Frank Pierce in this movie um, in that they are these kind of Christ-like figures that are going through their lives in a time of kind of an existential crisis where the internal struggles they face seem almost next to nothing to the just utter chaos of the world outside them and how they're supposed to react and and live and engage with that world um i i love the script in this movie i think it's got just enough about uh, uh, i would say just enough of everything to just keep me engaged from scene by scene i think it's a general generally funny film uh through and through which is not to say that it's a straight-up comedy, but some of these uh, side characters certainly add a touch of uh, zaniness, so to speak, to Frank's underlying mental issues that it's, it is genuinely entertaining to see John uh, Goodman, you know, complain about Beef Maine or uh, Ving Rhames uh, just shout out uh, Bible verses while Frank is just trying to get through their shift. Um, but what I love is that ultimately this is honestly one of the same movies that Scorsese has made forever from his very first movie, uh, to one of his most recent, like, um, uh, silence, which is that he is fascinated by the Catholic church and really Christianity in general and how a, a human being, kind of navigates that spiritual and secular uh, conversion and where one gives and the other one takes. And um, I think the script is one of the best examples of that. I think um, Paul Schrader's dialogue, which almost has even more so than something like Taxi Driver, um, but I think Bringing Out the Dead almost has like an ear for a noir structure when it comes to the way Frank's um, narration uh, peppers out the actual action on screen. Um, I mean, one of my favorite, uh, I think, lines in the movie is he says, I, I came to realize that my work was less about saving lives than about bearing witness. I, I was a grief mob. And, like, those two sentences together is kind of a good microcosm for what this film does well, which is that, like, that first sentence is, like, super profound and you know you can't say it better but then it's punctuated by that second sentence of just kind of a a silly uh you know simile like i was a grief mob and i feel like that's this film in a nutshell it's dealing with some very dark and underlying sadness that the character is dealing with but it's also punctuating it with these weird moments of if not levity then at least just unpredictable spontaneity that is inherent i think in the human condition but um still bewilderingly uh bewildering uh nonetheless and uh, i could go on and on but i won't yet um but just know that i think 
Nicolas Cage is perfectly casted. Uh, I think he is like the patron saint of insomnia. <laughs> so I, 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 I think he's very, very well utilized in this movie. Um, I love when John Goodman says like, oh, what do you want to eat tonight? And he says something like, oh, nothing. And then he's like, oh, that's right. You don't eat. And then the way Nicolas Cage is like, uh, I eat. I eat. <laughs> um, anyway, it's just there's so many great little scenes in here, and obviously the Tom Sizemore character, which we'll talk more about. Um, but yeah, I have a lot to say. Um, I'll end my opening thoughts by saying I think what clinches this movie for me for having a pretty high rating, which I'll get to obviously later, um, because I pretty much I love it all the way through. But then it's for me. It's that it's the final sequence that ends the movie on a higher level than I thought was possible with what came before with um, Patricia. It's, it's Patricia, right? Okay. Nah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always get them confused, unfortunately. Uh, but with Patricia Arquette's line of, uh, you know, um, in the doorway, she says, "Like you." Um, no one asks you to suffer or whatever. I mean, she's like, that was your idea. And just the simplicity of that um, in in retrospect and uh, in conjunction with reflecting back on his uh, problems is just super, super profound and can have a very lasting impact on the right viewer. So I, I'm a big fan of this movie. What did you guys think? I was... Uh... I was very pleasantly surprised. Um, I was probably one of those people who unfairly thinks of uh, Martin Scorsese's filmography as just really heavily gangster-based. And when I heard that you had picked this movie out and it was Scorsese, I was like, ah, fuck, I'm going to have to devote three hours of my life to this epic, sprawling drama. And like, I, I do sort of know better, and I have seen other not very many, but some lesser known movies in his career that don't fit the mold. So when it turned out to be like still a very noticeably like Scorsese movie in terms of like the tone and the energy and the music, but like just in terms of the scale, like the the, the time frame and that it's just, I don't know, following this, uh, this haunted guy and this ensemble around him. Um, I don't know. I just found it like a little bit more easily digestible than other movies of his that like, I feel like I have to carve out time for um, and like appreciate because they have such a stature in American cinema or whatever, which makes it sound like I'm damning this movie with faint praise. Like I thought it was really good, but like I was saying to Nick before we started recording, I was watching this movie just on a laptop late at night and he'd made the comment that like, it's kind of a good movie to watch in that sort of um, drowsy state. And that was, that was something that um, also really struck me about this movie is I think how well and how quickly it immerses you into this really unfamiliar and dreary world like from the very first shots when you're you're you know looking at Nicolas Cage's eyes and um you just have all these lights and sounds and sensations hitting you and you just are bombarded 
from the beginning with like all of these people and some of the worst moments of their life, like you kind of quickly become acquainted with like some taste of what that life must be like as a first responder like that. And it's just, it really wears you down. So when I was watching it and I was already kind of worn down, like it, uh, it, it really kind of resonated with me. So so I really liked it. I thought it was really immersive. I also thought it had a lot of really funny moments. Um, and great cast, too. Like, I liked... I, I also thought Nicolas Cage was, like... This was, like, Pete Cage. It was not not over the top too much, but like exactly the right amount of unhinged for him to do. And like, uh, as the movie progresses, then his eyes are getting redder and redder. It's just like, he's just so perfectly inhabiting this character. And uh, those are, those are my preliminary thoughts about it. I was pleasantly surprised by it. So, uh, again, I had never seen this, which uh, as a Scorsese, I don't want to say super fan, but as a big fan, uh, you know, anytime I find a movie that I have not seen of his, uh, I'm intrigued and interested to check it out. So obviously I was all on board for this. And um, I will say that my feelings on this are it is quite good, especially on a first time viewing, although towards the bottom of my Scorsese ratings as uh you know this is really the kind of film of his that doesn't really reach out to me i'm much more into the films that make sarah want to walk away from the television apparently but (laughs) everyone's obviously totally different and they don't make um, me want to walk away they just make me tired with what (laughs) i feel like i have to bring to the table to watch them but go on (laughs) Uh, I very much understand. I mean, The Irishman was longer than a flight to California from Illinois, and all of his other films are, for the most part, from the last two decades, have been in that three-hour range. So I do not not go against anyone who thinks that that's a, a wee bit too long. Uh, in this era at any rate so this film i was a fan and again i didn't love it but i quite enjoyed it um i felt like the interesting part of this film is it really found a way to have different tones throughout the three sections of the film Uh, we have the very kind of relaxed and what really felt like an everyday at the job on his first night with John Goodman, which makes sense is that's his regular, uh, his regular co-pilot, his regular partner. And, you know, that just felt like every other day that he's probably had for the last, however many days, months, years, whatever, other than the idea of basically bringing someone back to life uh, in the apartment in the first scene of the film. And then we have the second scene, which is fantastic with Lee Rames, uh, where I'm sorry, but I was pretty much cracking up at the end of that fake resurrection when he's 
pretty much shouting out, Jesus, Lord, bring back Abby Bangin. I don't know. That was awesome. That was amazing. <laughs> and I actually really liked everything about Ving Rhames' character, uh, whether it's his obsession uh, with this idea of being a you know religious follower who's bringing Jesus to these people in their time of need, which seems very gross to me. Uh, and at the same time, he also weirdly is continuously hitting on the operator who is not interested. So Queen Latifah. Uh, you know, that's, yeah, I thought oh, really? that was yep, her. That's her voice. I, I know Martin Scorsese was one of the yeah, operators uh, as well. So too is it's the the king and the queen. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, and then obviously the final night with Tom Sizemore, which uh, is pretty much like a coked out, crazy psycho fest and uh, different tones, a lot of different settings, even though we're in the same area uh, of Manhattan throughout it. Uh, it just makes the film very, I would say fresh throughout the three parts of the film. And I enjoyed that. Uh, I, I also enjoyed Nicolas Cage's performance. I thought he was good here. And in general, I think when casted in a film that gives him an opportunity to give a decent performance, he usually is pretty good, even if he's not like a Daniel Day-Lewis type actor. But at the same time, uh, he's well casted here and gives a very solid performance. And I also very much liked Tom Sizemore here. He's perfectly casted because he's a complete piece of shit in real life. So he didn't have to go very far for this role and he succeeded. So I was a fan of him and obviously Vane Rames. And uh, I'll say the one last thing, and this is getting a little uh, in depth, I guess for opening thoughts, but uh, I, and I guess I'll pose this question then after I finish my thought and then get everyone else's thoughts. And so we'll move into more general remarks, but I felt like everything in the hospital was pretty great. I mean, that's a great sort of view for this film and what it's trying to say about these people in this area in Manhattan in the early 90s, which is, I think, in the opening title when it says that this is supposed to take place. And this film has a lot to say about these people in this area and these conditions because... You know, this hospital is basically, at least the waiting room area, looks like looks like a police station. You know, there's there's people being arrested, there's people handcuffed, there's people arguing, security officer who is standing in front of the door and not allowing anyone through and kind of being an asshole about it, and I understand why he is. Um, you know, this is a different hospital than most people are accustomed to, which makes sense because especially as we are very much, uh, well, some people are awakening to the fact now, but uh, very much a different world than a lot of people live in where healthcare and just getting the help that you need when you need it uh, is not a right and you have to go somewhere where you can basically be turned away unless you're on death's doorstep. And the other side of the coin is that we see this a lot, obviously, with Tom Sizemore's character. 
the people who are working in this hospital and in the medical field have have almost grown uh, a gross detest for these people who they serve uh, sometimes multiple times. And uh, there, there certainly is a very hard racial tension in this film that is not, there's not a lot of time spent on it, but it's definitely there, especially watching this film 20 years after it came out. So I, I really enjoyed that part. I thought um, it landed really well, especially watching it in the current environment that we're living in. And, and I'm interested in what you guys thought about all of the scenes that took place in the hospital. Yeah. Oh yeah. Those were definitely highlights for me. I think the fact that you describe the, uh, the ER as basically like a police station is probably not, uh, accidental. I, I think one of the things that's so interesting about the day-to-day happenings, so to speak, of these first responders and paramedics is that the line is incredibly blurred of what their role in society is. There's, you know, what they were hired to do, and then there's what they end up having to do just to, you know, facilitate actual health care, and a lot of the times it starts to look more like what we would think police do or social workers do and whatnot. And um, uh, it, it, it was extremely interesting to watch it uh, in this June of 2020 because it was funny. Obviously, there's a couple of characters like uh, Tom Sizemore's character and certainly um, Frank Pierce on a bad day who have uh, horribly sadistic tendencies, which I think we're learning is all too real. But it also kind of shown how much empathy public uh, first responders have if they're coming at it from a place of wanting to go save a person rather than wanting to go, um, I don't know what you want to say, I guess, like uh, solve a dispute or something like that, you know? Like, their goal before they get there is to do no harm. And I feel like that in and of itself is um, fascinating on a dramatic level in the movie, you know, like what they have to do. I mean, like when he tells uh, Noel that um, (laughs) they're not allowed to kill people on the street, they have to bring them back to the ER, to the special room where they'll kill them there, you know. (laughs) You know, that was weirdly effective because, you know, it's one of those things where that just sounds awful on paper, but when you have a person on drugs and you know not gonna then you there's something empathetic about trying to speak their language no matter how fucked it is um or how many degrees removed it is from proper protocol um that's kind of touching at least in that way obviously we see with characters like tom sizemore's character that you know it can be taken the other way, which is people who think that they have the right to do anything because without them, they, you know, be nowhere. And um, certainly doesn't let either either of those types of personalities go without being mentioned. Yeah, that, you know, 
this whole discussion ties into what I thought was one of the most striking things about watching the movie right now in the present era is that, you know, with COVID, there's like an increased, um, at least demonstration of appreciation for people in the medical profession and first responders and, you know, all kinds of workers who are deemed essential, but like, especially people who deal with sick people. And there's a lot of like, in my opinion, very glib assessments of them as heroes. And then we just kind of move on as they, you know, go about their business without the proper compensation, safety protocols, support of all kinds, et cetera, et cetera. But they're heroes. We appreciate them so much. We're applauding for them every night, you know? And so here's this, here's this piece of media that I feel like has a very unvarnished look at, at that, at this profession. And like, you know, there are some people like Nicolas Cage's character who, um, by his own account used to be pretty good at his job. And I think does have a very, has some kind of conscience and empathy, but he's not like this, you know, archetype of somebody who is, well, heroic, I guess. And then there's the Tom Sizemore character who is just decidedly not good at his job being judge, jury, and executioner. And like the scenes in the hospital as they're doing, you know, very understandable um, triage and assessing severity of cases and all. Like we see them just kind of confront some of the some of these cases in ways or like treat or or talk about them talk about like you know the homeless people they have coming through or like some of the regulars in ways that are like kind of crass or surprising at first but like they're understandable I guess what I'm trying to say is like they they make it really um I don't know, they they really do a good job making it seem like, I don't know, you're you're actually there doing the day-to-day work and understanding what it's like and how it is still just a job. Even though you're dealing with life and death, there are certain, I don't know, certain problems you run up against that are just Nick you sound like you're ready to say something help me out here (laughs) well I was gonna say that to expect a certain level of probably compassion is Mm -hmm. slightly disillusioned because if they were that passion uh, about you know or that that emotional and whatnot uh, then they wouldn't be able to do their job because it's already sucking the life out of them yeah, that's right. And this is territory that I think that other um, medical medical centered dramas have done before. Like I, I know there were episodes of ER and probably like every other doctor drama that's like, damn it, I that one just really got to me. Like I can't let it get under my skin or else I can't do the job. It's like kind of a cliche probably when that comes up now, but there was just something about the way that this movie treated it that like, I don't know, it seemed a lot more real and humanizing of, of first responders to me that I just, I really, really liked like, you know, the watching him go from watching, um, 
Cage's character go from call to call and, and to some of these scenes that would be the apex of some drama, but no, it's just like another part of his night. And now he's going on to the next one. And like, yeah, of course they have kind of callous nicknames for some of the people that they're treating, or like it takes them forever to respond to a call because they're fucking burnt out. It's, it's hard as hell. And, uh, I I don't know, like the movie does such a good job I think of like throwing you into that world that like when Patricia Arquette's character is gonna offer um the Mark Anthony character some water you're already like as if you were like big mistake should not I already know better than to offer that guy water because I've I've already I have the same world weariness of all these professionals who deal with this shit all day long so that was it's like giving a gremlin water you don't do it. <laughs> exactly. And then, as we all know, he did turn into, you know, what he turned into later in the movie, a, a blood-soaked madman. <laughs> so true. I yeah, didn't realize that, that was Mark the... Anthony until after the movie was over, by the way. And I was like, what? Jay, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I, I could kind of see what she saw in him for those three years they were married. Yeah, I looked it up. There was a ten. Apparently, this was filmed while uh, Nicolas Cage and Patricia Arquette were married. They were married? Oh. Yeah. I remember hearing that a long time ago, but I forgot about it. And then when I was looking this film up, it was like, this film was made during their two-year marriage. <laughs> and I was like, uh, oh. Hollywood is weird, man. Yep. Yeah, and to kind of echo something yeah, the, too, uh, Alex was saying that about the contemporary viewership is it is just like now that um, the whole and not like healthcare has never been in the forefront of people's mind, but I feel like it's a bit more front and center of a discussion even before the worldwide pandemic hit. So just to see how how people in desperate need of help are treated in this movie. It kind of is, is shocking as a, as a 2020 viewer, like, well, this sure is making the case that people uh, have, have, have right to have right to care. And they're just not receiving it. Now, is that the uh, explicit message of the movie that you were supposed to be thinking about the whole time? No, I'm sure not, but it's hard not to think that as you're watching it. Hell yeah. So, uh, really quick, what I was going to mention about the Mark Anthony character of Noel and his blood-soaked scene, uh, I, for whatever reason, the view of that, I loved that, with his (laughs) dreadlocks and just spinning his head around and blood going everywhere. And I just felt for Nicolas Cage as he is just a mess after that. And, you know, this is a guy who's legitimately com- you know threatening to commit suicide and is bleeding all over himself uh so you know there there's there is a lot going on there uh, in that moment and you know for for these other than tom sizemore these ambulance drivers or paramedics or first responders or whatever you want to call them you know, in this environment, this is just another day at the office. And, oh, man, you know, every day just having to go out and figure out how to best treat 
uh, a patient who is like this. Uh, and, and really that's what the film goes down to uh, in the end, at least for me, is that there are many different ways to treat a patient. And, uh, you know, this film really goes forward at the end as we have uh, Frank Pierce pulling the plug on someone who his family didn't say they wanted to have the plug pulled <laughs> on, uh, as we have the stark opposite of Tom Sizemore, who almost murders Noel uh, in the street with a baseball bat, which is uh, a really horrific scene that uh, has, you know, other than a throwaway lineup, I think he's going to make it, which may not have been totally genuine uh you know we have almost no resolution to that other than seeing tom sizemore trying to destroy his ambulance at the very end of the film uh which was a little odd i thought but at any rate um you know that nicholas cage final scene is he's been dealing with the spirit uh of patricia arquette's father since almost the beginning of the film uh and that kind of weird mercy killing of the idea of someone who's taking a life to help a soul out. Uh, you know, that goes pretty, at least for me, that goes pretty deep, especially in a film that's led by Nicolas Cage. Absolutely. Um, and you know, that kind of goes with the whole, I think religious, not even undercurrent. It's pretty much an overcurrent. I mean, you literally have, uh, his girlfriend named Mary, you know, you have the Mark Anthony's character is technically a Noel, you know, and, um, obviously the, the red cross on any ambulance, uh, the burden to bear. And, um, what I find interesting is that I feel like toward the end, uh, he gives up, I think, a little bit on the idea of saving people. Not in a way that means that he's given up on the job, but just on that being uh, his form of salvation. And because he can't, and he, uh, you know, um, like in a very Jesus Christ-like way, he can't perform miracles over and over and over because then they have no meaning. And um, there would... <laughs> And so I, I'm, I'm a very big fan of the fact that the climax kind of ends with him being more of an arbiter uh, than an actual uh, deity, I guess, to, for lack of a better word. I don't know. He kind of becomes the angel of death. So if you're if you're cool with that, I am cool with that. <laughs> Actually, no, I think yeah. To the to the difference of the Tom Sizemore character who uh, you know has his his beef with Noel and why he's trying to cause him grievous bodily harm, like that sort of person making a decision, a life or death decision, is quite different from the decision that Frank makes, which ultimately I think comes from an actual understanding and, and compassion and an understanding of life and death for, you know, this guy or psychopathy, like hearing the voices in his head and maybe he didn't have the right to make that decision for the patient. But, um, I mean, in the context of the movie, I thought it was, you know, <sighs> actually a, a pretty a moving a moving thing and a good scene and you know 
very effective. It's funny that, you know, we're a little ways into this great episode, uh, and we haven't uh, mentioned uh, Rose, his patient that he failed to save so many months prior to the events of the movie, which led him uh, into this, I guess, rut uh, psychological existential crisis you want to call it um, but Rose is a character throughout the entire film despite obviously never being present um, in reality um, what did you did you guys think that, that was like two in the background because I mean even the climax like hinges on that plot line because we see Rose finally you know, it's one thing for Rose to show up in the actual, you know, in visions of people on the street, um, but it's another thing for Rose to be the vessel that he sees Patricia Arquette's Mary say, it's not your fault, you know. Um, I was curious, what did you guys think of that whole arc and impetus for the character? I actually didn't love that part of the film. Okay, Sarah, what did uh, you think? <laughs> I loved it. It was actually good, and anybody who oh. thinks that it wasn't is wrong. Thank I'm, you, guys. I'm kidding. Alex, uh, film snobs win. <laughs> okay, no. Uh, so I didn't love that aspect of it, mostly because um, I was much more personally invested and interested in this idea of Nicholas Cage having this ex- existential crisis and seeing different spirits of people. Um, and, and I got the vibe from Rose's character uh, and Nicholas Cage's vision of her that, that this is the reason why he's having all of this and not because of the people that he's currently trying to save. Um, and for me, it took away a little bit from the actual story that was going on throughout the events that were transpiring uh, throughout here. Like, I, I guess more so what I'm really trying to get at is that you know, Rose is obviously a major symbol throughout the film. But, you know, we keep seeing him see her and, and having this idea of, of trying to save her. But it doesn't really match up with everything else that's going on in the film for me, uh, especially with the tone that's going on in the different scenes that we see or the different parts of the film uh, as the three nights progress. So I don't know. I mean, again, I've only seen the film the one time, so it hasn't had a lot of time to marinate. So I wouldn't put myself as a uh, lot of thought given into this, but just on the first viewing, it wasn't my favorite part of the film. You know, I don't have a real strong um, reaction to how they used Rose in the end, where basically he was seeking some sort of redemption for her death in particular, and how, um, you know, how she superimposed on the, on the uh, Patricia Arquette character, like that. It, it is definitely interesting that it does sort of fall in line with the whole religious allegory and the idea of forgiveness and all of this. But I, I thought that it was really, but prior to that, just really poignant the way that she cropped up in, um, 
you know, just in the faces of the people that Frank would see on the street. And I thought that that was another really good thing that the movie tackled is just um, just the idea of trauma and how it manifests and how, you know, there is this one this one person that the protagonist can't shake. Like I'm sure just like in, just like in the real world, people who do this thing, like they must know that um, outside of their own skills and ability, you will probably, you're going to encounter quote unquote failures or you're going to lose people. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you, but some of them just stick with you more. And I just, I liked the way that the film depicted Rose's appearances throughout and then just like kind of how harrowing it was when we saw Frank's trip and kind of visited sort of how it actually all went down. But yeah, I'm still, I'm still very fresh to all of this too, Alex. So I haven't really thought a ton about how, what I think about like the, the furtherance of like any religious allegories, but one thing I will say that I thought was kind of interesting when I afterwards was reading the synopsis of this, uh, like just on Wikipedia and elsewhere, is how it described this movie like a supernatural thriller, or not maybe not thriller, but the word supernatural was definitely in there. And I was like, I don't know if I if I would have really thought that. I, I certainly didn't think that on my own. And I, I suppose they call it supernatural or like the copywriter calls it supernatural because like you are maybe seeing a ghost or like just um, seeing a ghost or like having some kind of weird psychic connection Frank experiences with um, Patricia Arquette's father. But I certainly never interpreted it as anything like actually ghostly happening. I thought of it as like actually very natural like uh what what a mind does to cope with incredibly stressful difficult awful things it's going through so i thought that part was interesting i don't know how you guys thought about it yeah i it's so funny because i feel like the title doesn't know favors and i like the title i do too i thought i think the title's great i actually forget yeah um, but I literally, I, I watched this with my dad and I said, Hey, I'm going to watch a movie. Uh, and he asked what it was called and I said, bringing out the dead and he goes, Oh, I've never heard of it. And I said, Oh, it's got Nicolas Cage in it. And he's like, Oh, and he's like, nah, he goes, you watch a lot of weird horror movies. And I was like, <laughs> no, I'm like, actually, and like, he's not stupid for thinking that as far as that. Oh no, not at all. But I'm like, no, it's actually... I was like, it's about, he's a paramedic. And he's like, what? I'm like, well, I'm like, I, and then I had to think for a second, not because it's such a weird title, but I'm like, well, I mean, think about paramedics. They go in there to save people. Sometimes they bring out the patients. Sometimes they bring out the dead. And, um, and, you and, should have pushed your glasses up your nose and said, oh, actually, Dad, it is a horror movie. Yeah. It's about the horrors of modern society. <laughs> you know what's scary? You're... Healthcare, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I definitely think that title almost lends itself. And, and certainly the way the movie is shot. I mean, you have these extremely 
uh, washed out uh, images and you have lights that are overtaking the lens and not in a gimmicky uh, lens flare J.J. Abrams way, but in an actual way that almost suggests some kind of, you know, specter or ethereal plane that um, Mm -hmm. uh, Nicolas Cage is essentially wandering to and from. Um, On that subject, I'm curious, just as an impression, what you guys thought about the detour this movie takes into Cliff Curtis's character's uh, den of drugs uh, with uh, the character of Psy and the whole drug sequence. Um, I really quickly... Oh, oh. yep. I was going to say a fun fact, which, which is that the during the drug trip sequence that Nicolas Cage has, when you see the actual flashback of him trying to save Rose, apparently that if you think it has Lynchian qualities, it is because the actors perform the movements in reverse, and then the footage was reversed. To oh help. boy! Now I just have goosebumps. <laughs> wow. I thought so. Hollywood, baby. <laughs> I, I will say, and then I'm going to also just kind of spur this into a general uh, feeling on drugs uh, in this film as well, if that's You're all gonna right. You're going to say, yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to so, say the general feeling on drugs. Yes. Well, this is actually a PSA podcast. So anyways... <laughs> I love that scene you're referencing. Um, and as soon as it started and just the idea of the snow moving up from the ground uh, and the way that the characters were moving, I, I didn't know about uh, it being shot backwards, but I just loved the look of that. That uh, makes that a lot progressed. of sense in retrospect. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, what a cool effect. And then now it's like, Oh, movie magic, I guess. Uh, so, <laughs> I uh, really liked uh, the character of Cliff. I thought that that character everything. Psy. His name is Psy. In real life. Is his Cliff. name is Cliff. I know. It's Thank confusing. you. That's... I love that guy. Yep. He just he shows up in a lot of random things, and most recently he just showed up in uh, Doctor Sleep as a very important secondary character. Anyway, yeah. shout out because nice. he doesn't get a lot of love. Aww. I yes, mean, maybe uh, he does. Certainly, I don't. Know. I, we we don't know. It's not our place to know. I thought his real name was the character's name, so obviously <laughs> it's not going great. Uh, so I liked that sequence quite a bit, uh, and I, I enjoy um, this storyline going on in the background about Black Death, or what is the name of the heroin drug that's floating around yeah i think black death Death is an organ orgasm (laughs) isn't that what the black death is Uh, like that phrase is it oh maybe not maybe i'm just (laughs) projecting i guess a little bit or or am i thinking of like little death oh yeah you're thinking yeah and in French, I think that is that is an death? idiom that actually exists. Yeah. Uh, and for for what I, for all we know, I'm sure there oh, yeah. are all kinds of strange La petite sayings. Mort. 
is an expression which means the brief loss or weakening of consciousness and in modern usage refers ex specifically to the sensation of post-orgasm as likened to death. So I was thinking of the little death, not uh, black, black death. death. Well, if, if you think that that makes you not worthy of roasting, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> the black anyway, death I, was the I, bubonic plague. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> So, like, I thought that that was clearly understood, that that's what that was. But, yeah, maybe there was a secondary use that I didn't know. Anyway, that was a fun aside. I just want to briefly register before I lose this thought that um, I also enjoyed the effect of the Rose flashback without, you know, consciously realizing, like, how they shot it. That was really cool. Like, it, it stuck with me in a way that I can't describe just what it looked like and everything. But um, the character Sai, one of my highlights of the movie is the scene where he, uh, when we revisit him after he has been impaled. And there were a few times throughout this movie where, like, obviously, um, you know, the setting and the characters they're in, they're just, it's inextricably, like, a whole new york thing and like i just kept getting the the vibe that like i don't know the two um the characters from oh hello were gonna come on at some point and make some really new york specific comment and one of the times i was thinking that was right when um Sai's character is like kind of waxing nostalgic about New York and like actually explicitly all of a sudden says like that's why I love this city <laughs> after he's just been horribly horribly maimed and he and the EMT are about to fall to their fucking deaths and like um I don't know if it's like that little part from Rhapsody and Blue starts playing and I had been thinking it before like huh this movie's like really kind of in your face about that's New York baby. And then a character just all but explicitly says that. And I thought it was so funny and like really fun and kind of with fireworks. With fireworks. Yeah. yeah. Rap, Rap, Rhapsody in blue, otherwise known as the United theme song. Oh, I was going to uh. say Woody Allen's go to sex music. <laughs> <laughs> With oh, uh, adults or minors? Uh, well, Minus allegedly. Years. Allegedly. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Alex, what were you going to say about uh, so, Cliff Curtis' character? Or yeah, something so, in that neighborhood? Uh, yes, I enjoyed that scene and the kind of chill drug dealer that he is, where he's got his... Uh, bouncer uh, i don't know what the best word is for him but you know he's got his gun out and ready to go after nicholas cage as he's basically taking patricia arquette and ready to leave after both of them uh, are high on some form of uh, drug that they've been given which seems like it's probably different than what the other person has uh and he's ready to pretty much go after him with his gun he says nah man it's cool chill i, I just liked the way he went about it but Getting back to the drug, uh, Red Death, that is going around, I loved the inclusion of that in this film, actually, because it feels like most other directors or filmmakers or whoever uh, would have had their lead character almost go on a quest to 
crack the code and figure out who has bestowed this terrible form of heroin on the city and I'm going to take them down while saving lives at the same time. And this film really doesn't care about that background story going on of this. It's much more interested in the saving lives that are being impacted by this new drug that is uh, quite deadly. And, and, and I really do like that that goes unresolved at the end. And there's really no explanation for what the plan is for dealing with this. Uh, it's, it's just, just kind of like one more crisis to manage in amidst all yeah. of the other ones. It's the it's the newest thing, but it's just another thing they have to deal with. It's hydrochloron. <laughs> Hydro hydrochloroquine. Yeah, that thing. Yeah, that thing that I take every morning and it keeps me safe. Yeah, that's why that you thing. do it. She's had three heart attacks, but you know what? It's <laughs> worth it. That's right. Also, my lupus is gone and also never there to begin with. I put it on my Big Mac. I did, uh, as uh, Sarah was mentioning, uh, the just the view of him hanging off, uh, being impaled uh, on that that fence is quite something. Uh, with imagining that these sparks are fireworks over the city of New York, um, what a what a what a shot that was, and what a shot earlier in that scene too. Uh, when they walk into the apartment uh, and the expensive fish are just flopping on the floor as the <laughs> fish tank uh, apparently yeah. got shot with a bullet at some point. I was point. wondering about that fish scene. That entire <laughs> sequence is so great how it's just visual storytelling and nothing else because you see um, his main girl, I guess, uh, unfortunately murdered and shot in the head right in the front. And then, yeah, you see the fish um, on the floor, very sad, which, you know, they make mm -hmm. it a point to show the fish, and that uh, Sai is very, I think, enamored with them. Because <laughs> during the, mm -hmm. uh, Frank's drug trip, he's kind of paying more attention to the fishy than he is to his new client. But mm -hmm. um, I love the fact that that whole sequence starts with like almost like a mystery that gets solved because they say that they got two calls. One was shots fired on this floor and then a jumper on a second floor. And then we find out it's actually the same uh, sequence of events. It just spans uh, time and space, literally. Um, and I, I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was cool. That's the kind of quantum shit that I just fucking eat up. <laughs> and I got to see fish suffocate, and that's what <laughs> I eat up. That's what you're into. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Wow. Um, uh, how about, uh, you talked about some of the visuals in this film. How about that crazy ambulance 30-second uh, uh, sequence with Tom Sizemore and Nicolas Cage after he takes most of the drugs that are in the ambulance already. <laughs> uh, Never felt that, better in my life. That, man, that, that, that felt, you know, that felt like a Hunter S. Thompson moment where, you know, they're just smiling at each other and driving on this crazed quest through downtown Manhattan. 
Uh, and it felt like a, a different movie there for a little bit. And uh, I think it landed pretty well on what it was trying to accomplish. I agree. I thought that, obviously, that's kind of what I like about all these random kind of, not detours, but sequences of that. The action sort of take over um, the mode or the style, shall we say, but it never actually breaks. You know, it bends a little bit, but it doesn't completely come off its axis as, as becoming like a whole other thing um, to the point where... I, what's most remarkable is that, in my opinion, the film, one of the film's defining trait when it comes to its visual uh, palette or style is that it sometimes seems monotonous. Like, somehow Scorsese is able to mask these editing choices and, um, you know, pacing uh, differences with the colors and I think in the lights to the point where on the surface, it almost looks like just the same images over and over and over in almost the same manner, but, but, it's, but they're radically different, and I don't quite know how he and uh, uh, Thelma Shoemaker pulled that off, but hats off to them, because I think that's a very nifty trick. Um, well, it, it, yeah. yeah, it makes me really want to watch it again, actually, and kind of look for some of those things, because I remember thinking around that time, like, um, you know, if I didn't know anything else about the movie, like who directed it, I think, you know, the, the musical cues would have been like one sort of thing, but like, I think by we, the time we get to the Tom Sizemore sequence is when I started thinking like it kind of, the, the way things are coming off the rails a little bit, the way the camera is moving and things seem to be going a little bit faster. Like I, I thought it, it, it did feel a lot more amped up and like I realized like I had moved imperceptibly so over the course of this movie which like you say has a lot of the same a lot of the same patterns repeating it's just like traumatic thing traumatic thing traumatic thing but like in a way that is kind of banal and that's by the time it gets there it starts getting sort of crazy so yeah I want to I want to see it again and just really sort of digested a little bit more now that I've had it um, the first time around. Not to mention that banging soundtrack. Uh, obviously, Marty. Uh, Pretty oh. banging. <laughs> he always gets the old oh, milk he, crate. He plays his, he's got a little <laughs> tunes on there. Yeah, he likes his music. Yeah, I'd say he was able to get a few gold standards in there. Uh, and I gotta say, uh, it's very much pandering uh, to this old chain gang, uh, when you're playing R.E.M. I, yeah, as soon as I heard that song, I was like, well, no fucking wonder Nick likes this movie. <laughs> Jesus, H. Yeah. No, that was, that was great. That was one of the, uh, and they were all, you know, I liked all the musical choices, but I particularly enjoyed that one, and like, somewhat knowing the background of the song to it just you know well it seems like cliche and stupid to say that like oh Martin Scorsese chose a, a fitting and effective song for this <laughs> sequence but god damn it he did no and he's one of the only filmmakers I was, I was gonna say yeah. he, he picked he picked a song that wasn't by the Rolling Stones, so that was good. Yeah, that is true. He, there, was I don't there think not a, a 
single one. No. And uh, I, for one, I'm glad. I like them a lot, but... Uh, <laughs> they you don't know, need to be in every overboard Just stay in the gangsta picture, boys. Um, <laughs> I, uh, but w- what's interesting, too, about the music is that the music in this movie, and I'm sure it's probably that way in all of his movies, and I just never really noticed because... For whatever reason, I was paying more attention to the soundtrack in this one because I'm like, this is the, uh, I be banging. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> but I, the music in this movie is like in conversation with the film itself. There are actual musical cues where a character will say something and then we'll cut to Van Morrison, you know, saying something that's almost a direct rebuke or affirmation of what a character just said um, in a very creepy way. And I'm, I'm literally blanking on the lyric that was the most shining example of that. But if you rewatch the movie ever, you'll notice that if you pay attention. But, like, it's, it's funny how some of the actual lyrics are set up on cue to literally comment on what is happening Um and I very much appreciate it. I definitely appreciated uh, the repeating motif of that Van Morrison song, which kind of became this late-night anthem for Frank's uh, late nights, late-night anthems for his late nights. Nothing but the best mm-hmm. here on Frank Tank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we haven't talked much about Mary throughout this, uh, and she's an interesting character to be the... Uh, the real second build uh, actor in this film. And, you know, she's just a very interesting character for me because, uh, you know, we find out uh, after the first, and I do appreciate too, that we don't find out everything about her right away. Uh, The audience is allowed to make their own judgments on her character or her as a person in this film after we, we just kind of, get no information about her other than the basics that you can grasp for yourself. But it's found out that she previously had a drug problem. I I think it's at least somewhat hinted that she may have been uh, a prostitute or had some sort of sex addiction at some point. Uh, And, you know, seeing somebody with a troubled past who, um, you know, even has the line about how, she may have seen Nicolas Cage in her previous life as she many times had to be taken to the hospital. And he, I believe says, I think I would have remembered you. And then just that, that kind of, you know, is kind of a weird, almost cheesy thing that you would hear in some sappy movie that's directed by someone like Kenneth Branagh. But here, um, you know, it, it actually feels earnest. And um, I like kind of like what I said with the Red Death thing, you know, her character is always on the fringe in this movie. And they, other than you know, that final shot where we kind of white out into the credits, um, she's always at a distance. And, and I think obviously that's a lot of what Nicolas Cage's life is, is that everyone, including himself to himself is at a distance um but but i think she provided a real real good energy for the film uh and was a good character i agree i the dynamic between the two is pretty great because it's really set up 
in an almost eye-rolling way, not in the way it was handled, but just it's a trope in and of itself, you know, someone to play, uh, you know, an essential worker like this, whether it be a cop or, you know, healthcare professional, um, meets a person in a very vulnerable time in their life, and then they need saving. And I think what this relationship in this movie does a great job is saying she doesn't need saving. Um, you know, he met her in one of the worst nights of her life, but that doesn't mean that she's completely broken. Um, and obviously that in and of itself is more of a projection of what Frank is doing with himself and not <laughs> with her. And the fact that they're able to move past that uh, in the very last scene, and that's where they both kind of find peace uh, moving forward is, I think, very, very touching. Yeah, I, I got to agree with all these sentiments here. Like, it's sort of surprising how even though you can see the development of the relationship or you can anticipate it coming, they do it in a way that's not cloying or super cliched. And, you know, they are, they're obviously both going through some shit, but they do both. It feels really earned, like the kind of um, the ending they get together and, um, and just like sort of the peacefulness and the innocence of it. Like I really liked that and how that was what capped off all of the, uh, the blood and the <laughs> unpleasantness and the gore before it was just, it was just nice. And yeah, I liked, she's a pretty understated character, but I did like Mary and I thought that, um, I like I like Patricia Arquette as an actress in general. Like she's not, I feel like I've seen her play the same sort of character, but she is just sort of solid and every day and just a good, a good incarnation of this character. Yeah. I think Sarah, what you just said right now. Um, wow. Give, give me a moment. See, the problem with I'll give you a few more seconds. working from home is that I'm actually <laughs> doing a few things for work while we're recording this podcast. So I am patiently doing nothing but doing this podcast because I'm afraid if I so much as open another tab on this computer, everything will explode. I got through like an hour and 20-ish minutes or so without being distracted, so I'm pretty proud of myself there. Problem is our fiscal year ends in like two days, so I have a deadline tomorrow to, to buy some more books for the library, so I'm literally just online shopping. <laughs> anyway... Well, thanks for just destroying my closing thoughts about Mary and how there was something about her. Ah. <laughs> oh, boy. That's the kind of fun we oh, have That movie here. hasn't aged. Uh, no, it has. What? It's, I've um, never seen that. How many yeah. years old, though? <laughs> oh. oh, boy. Didn't, those come out, didn't that come out like the same year as this? Or like... Yeah, that would have been like... It was late 90s. Yeah, 99, 98, 97, 96, 95-ish. Somewhere in yeah, there. Yeah, somewhere in there. <laughs> How'd you get what? the book Somewhere in the span of a half a decade. It is a 1998 film. So, yeah, it came out a year yeah. before. 
Yeah, that, that film is 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 good because Matt Dillon plays a creepy uh, and a comedic role plays a creepy stalker. Uh, and uh, again, just like in the house that Jack built, I don't think he's doing much acting. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. In fact, just saying Matt Dillon's name, uh, A, gives me a boner, and B, uh, <laughs> while I actually like back up what I said earlier, where I think Nicolas Cage is perfectly casted, uh, 1999 circa Matt Dillon, I could see him playing Frank Pierce too, a, a version. He's got that kind of weird, grumbly intensity. Apparently, Paul Schrader sure. wanted uh, Edward Norton. Which obviously oh boy, would that, have... that's kind of that's kind of he was, he was he was very hot in nineteen ninety nine. Still he was is. in demand. <laughs> uh, is he? I, I can I picture that. Like I don't know. I think it's easy to say like oh the way that things turned out and like the person. Um, giving that performance like i can't imagine anything else like i can't imagine other things but i nobody has uh what well he doesn't have that specific um nicholas cage energy that and humor that he brings to it so i'm glad that it didn't turn out that way i completely agree actually um let's call it what it is his career has went down the toilet in the last decade yep and the only thing i've been following so i'm gonna say (laughs) that maybe is a uh, is a is a cosign of that statement. And the only time that even resurged was when he played a not quite parodic version of himself. So, do do people say parodic? Is that a is that a form um, of parody? They not, try not to people. avoid it because it sounds too much like erotic. Ooh, why would they avoid it then? <laughs> that makes no sense. I think it is one of those words that is actually a word, but you just don't really hear it spoken. I like to say things, okay, that people won't say, like Black Lives Matter. I mean, people, I mean, that's become a thing that even brands are saying now, just as a matter of course. Sure. Did Leah Michelle say it? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Can we trust So it turns her? out Leah Michelle is a big old bitch that nobody <laughs> likes. Uh, normally I'd be like, I oh, I don't know if we should go Leah. that far. But yeah, this week has really casted a light on I, I, Yeah, you know, I just want, yeah, I like to bring up even more things that will like really seriously date a time. <laughs> which something was recorded. We've never done that before, so yeah, oh. this is trouble. Oh, no! <laughs> yeah, so thanks a lot. Oh, no. No, so, trust me, the the, uh, the episode where we um, all talked about what the uh, photo of Joe Biden grabbing a child's genitals uh, definitely, <laughs> definitely Age. stayed relevant. Oh, boy. Well... <laughs> I think it's going to be relevant for a long time for one reason or another. I would hate to listen to the huge chunk of episodes that were recorded in the months leading up to the 2016 (laughs) presidential election. Because I'm sure I've been on that uh, podcast explicitly stating, there's no way. 
but did you were you actually saying things like that i mean i you know i would assume that we made jokes and i'm sure and i I would assume that some of the jokes were like hardy har har aren't we living in weird times because this is gonna be over (laughs) soon right so but i mean climate you certainly weren't alone in thinking that. Like I'm, you know, I I'm thankful that I didn't start a media or an entertainment <laughs> podcast at that time and record all of those exact same things that I was saying, you know, at work to yeah. people. And, and you uh, know, I will say the other thing is I don't own uh, SNL oh, and uh, didn't have them on the show. So didn't didn't you? No, he. I mean, I feel like in a weird no. way you. You did. Well, uh, we deleted that episode. Alex, what were you going to say? So, oh, I was just going to say, I very clearly remember uh, we had decided we were going to do an episode on uh, the HBO film that I very much enjoy uh, with Julianne Moore and um, Ed Harris called Game Change mm. uh, about the uh, 2008 election oh, what a and game uh, the choice of. <laughs> yeah. The choice of Sarah Palin uh, as uh, John McCain's running mate and, and kind of talk about the parallels between that election cycle and the one that happened in 2016. Uh, and then when the results came out, uh, all three of us had no interest in talking about that. Yeah. Weird. Uh, <laughs> when, did the, when did the HBO movie come out? Oh, that came out a while ago. Uh, like even yeah, relative say, was, to when he wanted to do an episode. Yeah, it was. I think it may have even been before Obama's second term started. It was okay. in that time period. That film yeah, got I'm a just, lot of good performances because other than Ed Harris and Julianne Moore, it's also got Woody Harrelson, uh, Sarah Paulson before she gained, became really big and a slew of other people. Say before she gained weight, I was like, whoa. <laughs> First of all, not even true. Second of all, how dare you? Before yes. she gained all that weight. Wow, what a, what a, man, good, good timing for that. Uh, <laughs> uh. That, that, I don't know, there's the whole idea of like um, commentary on that particular election. I don't know, that movie sounds embarrassing to me. Like, I'd be embarrassed to watch it in 2020. and Or 2016, obviously. Um, like, from the mindset of, boy, politics sure couldn't get any crazier, could they? Like, it just seems like a, a real hubris-filled position, or, or, or pretty quaint. And it seems quainter by the day. TBH. Well, I mean, and I don't, I don't mean to attack you. Say you are stupid for liking that movie. No, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> not at all. But just uh, like I, I'm just saying, I don't think some of these things age particularly well. Well, clearly, we are in a different universe than we were in 2008 because, yeah, I think most people thought that John McCain was at least like a a decent yeah. Republican choice. There were uh, and then, Democrats that were like, well, he's giving Obama a run for his money. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, he, he made a choice to try to go for 
go for the gold and uh, it didn't work out. But uh, yeah, it's a different, it's a different atmosphere where, uh, you know, some of the things she says, people are like, Oh, that person's dumb. They can't be president. And now, now, you know, it it doesn't matter. So turns out we were a bunch of fucking idiots. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? Brothers and sisters. (laughs) Oh no! Uh, any anything else we want to have some conversation on before going to final race? <laughs> any other topics we want to bring up? Oh, uh, other I don't know. Than, There's nothing much else going on. <laughs> no, I think yeah. we can go to final ratings. Um, okay. Do you want to go first, Alex? Or sure. Okay. Yeah. So I'm. I'm leaning towards a higher rating, but I'm going to stick with my initial rating since I've only seen it the one time and give this film a three out of five. I think I talked myself into a higher rating, but I definitely want to watch this again to give this another try uh, and look through some of the parts of this film and some of the messages that are happening on the screen uh, on a second viewing I think that this is a good movie and the more I think about it, I think the more I like it, but uh, there's definitely some parts of this that just aren't my speed and it's really nothing against it because it's a perfectly fine film uh, and definitely has uh, a lot of intriguing aspects to it. But for me personally, this isn't my favorite kind of Corsese, Scorsese film. Uh, and it didn't really click with me uh, in the way that his other works have. So I still enjoyed it, and I give this a three out of five. Sarah, would you like to go next? Yeah, sure. I'm going to say this is a movie that was good, and I fully expect to appreciate it more on a subsequent rewatch so with that in mind i'm gonna start at three and a half stars and fully expect to bump it up to four stars on a next viewing or if it hits me just right four and a half i think there's just um a lot of sort of subtle richness to be plumbed from this movie and anybody else who maybe doesn't think that they're like the biggest Scorsese fan like don't don't make too many assumptions check this bad boy out and remember to clap for your healthcare workers at 7 p.m but do not do anything to material improve materially improve their lot in life the end I could not have said a more moving uh sentiment thank you so much for that you're Um, welcome (laughs) i give this movie a four and a half out of five this is my whoa yeah i I, really went up there and uh this is my second time viewing this movie and i gotta say really tickles all the right pickles if you know what i'm saying (laughs) and uh I pretty much feel like I laid it all right out there on the table during this episode, so I don't have much else to add. But uh, Scorsese, <laughs> you son more of like a bitch. score. I'm feverishly trying to think of a good 
wordplay joke with Scorsese, and it's just not happening. No, yeah, kind of fucked it up, didn't you? More, more like, <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. More, more like, more, says he, where he is you, and what you want more of is Scorsese movies of this vein. Oh, oh I thought you said more, Desi, like, what Lucy more Desi movies? would say during sex or something. More, Desi, more. No, that is not what I was saying. I think that my... <laughs> I think my joke, it's a little bit of a walk, but it gets there. I'm always thinking about housewives and their paramours having sex from sitcoms in the 60s and the 50s. What can I say? Well... The dynamic between those two. How could you not? More, I more. My God. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know I Love Lucy invented the concept of the rerun? <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. I think I'm, I'm done for the night. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, that's an actual fact. I just had to fucking ruin oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were like, you know, doing a new episode, new episode, new episode, and then for whatever reason, they and then they were like, shit, we don't actually have to do this. Well, we that's just... kind of what happened, but like on accident because they couldn't go through with whatever the next episode was gonna be, and so they're like, okay, well, we'll just show a previous episode. But like, I know that sounds so quaint, but like when they did it, they had a no idea that they were gonna start something, and b, uh, you know. So, anyway, fun fact. I mean, I guess somebody had to be first. Like, that didn't even occur to me that that was a concept people would have to invent. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, you've redeemed your mention, your, your you. crass and horrible mention of that. Thank you. We, we, won't re- <laughs> we won't retread that territory, but very good. We won't do a re <laughs> okay, I'm dead. You kind of set me up for that one, though. Uh, good stuff. Well, if anyone out there has any additional thoughts on bringing out the dead, always feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com or send them to us on Facebook or Twitter at Film Tank Show. Also, you can find all of our episodes uh, whenever I post them. Uh, at filmtankshow.com or also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Coming up on our next episode, uh, a movie that I've been thinking about quite a bit uh, with the current events that are going on that isn't super... Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just going to say... He's going to be like, Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just say it's not super relevant i like that uh not super relevant but also uh i think has some crossover uh to what's been going on here recently uh and that is the best picture winner from six years ago yeah about uh, that. 2014 yeah. Uh, it was a very, very good film. I know my, myself and Nicholas went to Evanston to go see it uh, in a packed house uh, the weekend that we went, uh, the week before it was released uh, wide. nationally wide, yeah. 
And uh, it's definitely better than the cobbler. So well done. Um, for, now, do uh, you know that for a fact? <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> oh, man. I'm never going to find out. So I guess I won't ever actually know. But I'm going to assume that. At least for me personally, there's I, I don't know. not I, a, a real high chance. I think the cobbler might be an uncut gem, you know? You look a little closer. Oh, man. You're on a roll here. This is good. Thank you. Thank you. But anyways, Spotlight, uh, a very good film and, and definitely, um, I don't want to say an eye-opener uh, necessarily at all because I had obviously knowledge about it. But just watching the events transpire. They did what? That just sounded like oh, yeah, it's a little bit of insider knowledge on this whole thing. And uh, can't say that anything was all that surprising. Uh, <laughs> it's just, sorry, it's just, I think okay. me and Sarah both had the same thought of like, <laughs> like it accidentally sounded like you were like, yeah, that was a little step ahead of these kooks. Uh, okay, well, at any rate, I'm more meant because the film came out after uh, the events happened. But that's all right. That's okay. I probably should have said it a little bit better than that. Before the events. Yeah, no, you, you guys both uproariously laughing at the same time probably cements that uh, I just made myself look a fool. So that's, no, that's right. No, I, I actually, I had a different interpretation that was also kind of wrong, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> so, so somehow, I was laughing at the idea that this movie broke the ca- the, the scandal to you. Like, completely. Oh. That's what tickled no. me. I just want that to oh, be okay. clear. So to be clear, oh, okay. two different yeah. pickles, same kind of tickle. You know, I mean, these were different reactions. One is dill, one is real. Oh, um, okay. Well, uh, just to clarify for everyone, especially the two co-hosts on here with me, I was aware... This happened before (laughs) the film was released. It was only when the preview came out, but I was aware (laughs) Uh, that didn't land. That's okay. It's going really really terribly right here. I feel really awful that we're making you clarify that. Like, oh no, no. I mean, I don't have to. I'm I'm doing this because you're doing it to yourself, but we're also making it happen. I I feel like I, I need to shame myself a bit for this, but you know what? Sometimes that's okay. When you think about this, isn't that bad? Because imagine like 72 hours to, I don't know, 96 hours of this, because that's pretty much what it's like when I go visit Sarah up in the old uh, homestead. It's kind of like, yeah, nonstop shit takes. Yeah. (laughs) And recently Sarah... And her fiance got a roommate, and um, oh shout my out. god, the dynamic that that creates then when Nick visits. Yes, shout him out. Shout Nick. out to Alec, not Alex, Alec, uh, Sarah mm-hmm. and Andy's roommate, because I feel like he brings out the absolute best slash worst in uh, me and maybe slash Sarah. <laughs> 
when we're well, in the same room. Well, she's an earnest, good person, and that's <laughs> that's kind of the crux of it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is going to go down. Also, as, he's... Oh, as one of our best, I think, episodes ever. I think so, and it's probably because I am now elevated to series regular. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Alex, you want right, to really guys. quickly take yep, us home? I was going to say, yep. I was going to say uh, thank you to Sarah for joining us again, as now she is a self-proclaimed series regular. <laughs> uh, and from Sarah, Nick, and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much. We'll look forward to joining you next time here on Film Tank. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>